0: Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm really happy to have with me Marcus J. Moore, who is the author of a new book I really enjoyed called The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America. And it's a really interesting look at, you know, one of the most important artists of the century so far. Uh, Someone I've interviewed before and has always dazzled me with his genius and has made just classic album after classic album, and uh, first of all, welcome, Marcus.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: The thing about this book is it's not a straight biography of Kendrick by any means. It has a lot of biographical information, but what it really is is a a look at a couple things. How his artistry developed, how he made these classic albums, and also how it intersected with this political moment in the United States. Uh, How did you get the idea to approach it that way?
1: Well, because I knew that I knew that this was going to be the first book. Theoretically, it was going to be the first book on Kendrick Lamar ever. So I knew that it was probably too soon to write just a straightforward biography. You know, page one, he's born in this hospital, page 250. Here he is with the Pulitzer. I didn't want to do that. Um, But I also knew that, like, just as a fan, that uh, his music always sort of intersects. You know, it has this sort of social, political aspect to it as well, and you can't talk about his music without talking about Trayvon or talking about the killing of unarmed black men and women. Um, you can't discuss it without that, and so I figured, you know, even though it's recent history, it was history that still needed to be told, and and you know, people forget. I mean, because in the age of social media, everything moves so quickly that you kind of forget what went on like even a week ago or two weeks ago. So, I wanted to document everything that was going on at the same time. I wanted to, uh, first and foremost, I wanted to give flowers to Kendrick because, especially with black music, there's this notion that, oh, it's too soon, or oh, you know, we have to wait until a person gets old or passes away to celebrate what they do. And uh, I didn't want to do that, you know, because even this year, for instance, we lost Kobe Bryant, uh, Pop Smoke died, Chadwick Bozeman died. And then especially with somebody like Andre Harrell, he died. And then everybody, well, at least one person in particular hopped on Twitter and was like, Oh, we didn't give him the flowers. We didn't celebrate him when he was here. So I just wanted to take an opportunity to do that and, and just to, you know, place his music within the context of here's why you love the music that you do. I wanted to humanize the superhuman to, to a of cliche.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things you do is you actually talk to the families of some of these victims of police violence. Uh, what was that like?
1: Man, it was hard. It, it was hard because, um, you know, obviously, as a journalist, you prepare for interviews and you, you, you make sure that you have everything, all your ducks in a row, so when you're talking to the person, you know the history, right? And so with that, we all knew the history, we all knew how Tamir Rice's mom reacted and, and the struggle she went through. We knew what Mike Brown, Mike Brown's dad went through as well. But I, I give them all the credit because they were pretty strong. Like when I called them, they were totally open and to talking about it. They were totally open to walking me through what happened, um, you know, what happened when their children passed away, what they're going through these days. And it's like how I explained just a couple minutes ago where I just wanted to humanize them as well, because we only know them from getting shot down by law enforcement. But who were they beyond that? Who were they? Who could Tamir Rice? Who could he have been? Is what I'm trying to say. Who who could have Mike Brown been? So I wanted to talk about that. But also just as a as a black man, it was tough because I also remember that time in 2015, 2016, where, you know, there was a, a very palpable fear that you didn't know if you were gonna be the next hashtag. You didn't know if you were gonna run up on the wrong police officer who was just having a bad day. So there was a sort of helplessness that, that we all felt. And I wanted to tap into that too. So it was, it was a tough chapter to write. And uh, I also wanted to make sure I didn't give a short shrift. I wanted to dedicate an entire chapter to it because it was very, very searing history. And I didn't want I didn't want people to forget what was going on. So even for this generation, I wanted future generations to be able to go to chapter five and and get a sense of what was happening.
0: Yeah, I think it's really valuable and harrowing to see it all laid out like that as a sort of uh, first history book of these events. I mean, just it's these dominoes one after another of of these human beings passing. And and it's uh, it's I think a good reminder for anyone who doesn't remember how Black Lives Matter started. You take it from the very moment it began to the moment that it, be, it, it rose to nationwide prominence, and you set that against uh, Kendrick's artistry. And one thing I wanted to point out is that you learned that Mike Brown was, uh, was a Kendrick fan.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I talked to his dad. It was just like, no, he had a bunch of Kendrick Lamar on, the, on his laptop, and he loved his music. He was a huge fan of his. And then when you go to Mike's Big Mike's uh, SoundCloud, he was a rapper, you know, and th- this is stuff I didn't realize until I talked to him. And his dad was really great at preserving his legacy, like he's still fighting for justice in Ferguson. And, um, you know, I think it's a fight that he's going to be undertaking for a while. But when I spoke with them, he was very, very clear about what happened and how pe- black people feel about law enforcement in their, in their neighborhood. And I thought that was important to document as well. It's, you know, Yes, it, it's still a book about Kendrick, it's still a book about his coming up and how he impacted Black America, but you can't write a book about Black America without telling the whole story. And that's what I wanted to do with it.
0: Let's take it back to Kendrick's childhood. Now, uh, when I talked to him, I asked him about this, this idea that he was always this kind of old soul. I think it was man man was, was his nickname. But, but talk about the context in which he grew up growing up in Compton, what was going on around him, what was he reacting to, what was his childhood like?
1: It was a childhood I think that was similar to mine, honestly, where you know you, you grew up in a you grew up in a community where you know there may be crazy things happening around you, but you you have a strong family base and you have a strong uh, friendship circle where. Somehow they see something in you from an early age, you know, and for him, it was creative writing. They see something in you and they shield you from even the stuff that they might even do, you know. Um, So he came up, he he came up in Compton as gangster rap was coming up, as the riots were taking place, so on and so forth. So he came up in heavy gangbang culture, but he never and he had um, he had people in his family who practiced, but he never got into that himself. So he had all of this around him, but at the same time, he's a very sensitive person, a very sensitive creator. And so he's taking in all the stimuli at the same time. So he's he's taking in the notion that he couldn't walk the school safely, how he saw people get killed from his apartment and then his house. You know, he, he ran up on the wrong people, he had on the wrong colors, and he had to dart through somebody's backyard to avoid getting shot at or to avoid getting shot, you know, things like that. So... He came up in a city where, you know, the wrong move could have been it for him. But because he had so many great people around him, um, he hit his head a couple of times, but he didn't hit it so hard where, you know, we don't get the Kendrick Lamar that we get today. You know, so the reason why I say is um, I feel like we're similar in that way because I came up the same way where but I was on the East Coast. I came up in Landover, Maryland, where people see something in you from a a young age and and then they shield you. They almost protect you from yourself because you want to show that you're cool and that you you're down and you want to hang out with them. But he came up with that. And as a, as a result, he's still kind of struggling with some um, survivor's guilt and some depression um, because he, he still kind of has a, why me sort of, sort of mentality. Like why, why am I the person to have made it out? And uh, so that's, That's the situation that he came up in, and you can hear it all throughout his music, you know, all throughout Good Kid, all throughout To Paper Butterfly especially.
0: Absolutely. And I think you talked to, was it a high school teacher who was very important in his Mm -hmm. development? Tell, Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, Mr. Inge. Yeah, yeah, Mr. Inge was great. He was actually the guy who introduced Kendrick to creative writing. Because before then, according to Mr. Inge, like, Kendrick was always a good student, but he never really had an outlet to express how he felt. You know, he was always the quiet kid in the corner, kind of doing his own thing, Um, didn't really say much, you know, kind of, you know, maybe shy, I guess is the best word. And um, one day in particular, Mr. Inge notices that the black kids and the Latino kids were really, really like, you know, hostile towards each other. And his direct quote was, they were ready to fight at 7.30 in the morning. And so as a result, he goes home and he's like, man, how do I break down these tensions? And he he institutes poetry. And I've been a seventh grader. I remember how that is. When you think poetry, you think it's all roses are red, violets are blue kind of stuff. And you don't really want to take part in that. But he showed them, that, like, hey, guys, your favorite rappers are poets. They're just rapping about, you know, they're they're not rapping about the stuff you think that poetry is about. And so... As a result, Kendrick, you know, he really takes the shining to creative writing and poetry and uh, he just goes all in on it. He goes all in. He tries to get better. Mr. Inge is very critical of him. It's like, no, that's cool. But maybe try try this poem a different way. So on and so forth. And um, yeah, and I think it was in middle school is where Kendrick decided, yo, I'm going to rap. You know, I'm going to rap full time. And that's just where I'm going. You know, obviously he didn't have the chops back then, but he just stuck with it. And that's another thing that I wanted to show in this book is that, yes, we look at Kendrick Lamar now as like Kendrick in all caps. But how did he get to that? You know, he he had to work through that. He had to work to it. And what I wanted to show future generations is that you, too, can be this guy. As long as you put in your 10,000 hours, you, too, can have the same sort of impact that he did.
0: Now, what were the the next steps in him becoming a rapper? You tell the story of he's like walking home with a friend and he starts rapping and he's just freestyling off the top of his head for like block upon block. And his friend's like, if you stay off the streets, if you survive, you're going to make it. Which is, a you know, it actually reminded me of a, I was just reading the Mariah Carey. Uh, autobiography, and we talked about that last week in the show, and there's a moment, you know, she sings, and her little friend is like, when you sing, there's music around your voice, you know, and it's like this, it's this innate thing that people were starting to see in him, I guess. As much as there was hard work as well, of course.
1: Absolutely, and that's the thing, that was Matt Jeezy who told me that, and Matt, Matt was, uh, he broke down that story, it, I just had to laugh to myself when he was talking to me, because, yeah, I can imagine a young Kendrick just like, freestyling for like, what did he say, it was a a few blocks, I think you said it was like 20 minutes straight or something like that, where he was just <laughs> rapping rapping, rapping and yeah, like you just pointed out, he was like, man just don't die, bro, that was his quote like, don't die, bro, stay alive, you're gonna be the greatest, and so aside from the work, he starts doing these, um, he starts making mixtapes as K-Dot where he's just rapping for rapping's sake I think even by his own admission he wasn't really talking about nothing um, he was just kind of He wanted to be Jay-Z. He wanted to be Lil Wayne. And so he would get some of their beats and just rap on them (laughs) for like 40 minutes, you know, a 40 minute clip. Um, One day he is in a in a um, lyrical showcase and Soundwave is there. Producer Soundwave is there making beats for other artists. And so they link up and um, they link up and then they were trying to get in contact with each other for like a year after that. Until one day, Soundwave was already kind of locked in with the TDE crew because um, Punch was a family friend. He walks into Top Dog's house and he looks over at the couch and it's Kendrick sitting there. He's like, and then that's when he tells Top, hey, do what you can to keep this guy here because that guy's something else. Like, he's going to be something. So I think it's what you just pointed out, man, where it's like you have so many different people who just saw this innate ability this sort of greatness in him. And once he uh, locks in with Top, it's it's Top, it's J-Rock, and it's Kendrick. And it's just for a while, for a little while, it's just J-Rock and Kendrick just sitting there trading bars, trying to trying to improve, trying to get better. And then so on and so you know, then it slowly builds out. So then you have Sold, then you have Schoolboy Q that comes in, and then you have this collective. And to answer your question, I think that the next steps for Kendrick specifically were Sort of sharpening his iron with J-Rock and Schoolboy and Ab and all of them because it was friendly competition. You know, it's like everybody wanted to have the best bars um, between Soundwave and Terrace Martin and all those. They wanted to have the best beats. And as a result of them competing internally, by the time they you know, got their record deals and they were ready to hit the road, they were already seasoned. Um, so well, break, that was, break down,
0: uh, yeah. break down who top dog is and what TDE is and, and how that unique environment that he was sort of lucky enough to, uh, find his way into help shape him.
1: Sure. No, top dog was, um, he was sort of like this, uh, the neighborhood tough. <laughs> he was the neighborhood tough where, um, you know, he was by his own admission, he was just kind of out in the streets doing things, you know, just hustling, you know, he was, um, You know, doing top dog things as Punch always says, and so he realized at a certain point in the early 2000s that he wanted to. He the streets were getting a little too hot for him. He wanted to slow down and do something legit, like fully legit. And so his uncle had already been in the music business, and he saw all the art that he brought into. You know, he saw the his um, his
0: uncle did that song like we're all in the same gang, right? Is that that correct? Yeah, that's correct.
1: Yep, yep. So he saw the way his uncle did it. And so Top is like, well, I'm going to build a studio myself and I'm going to get all these big rappers to come in. It's going to be great. And um, so he tried that. You know, a couple of rappers came through, but it sort of it sat dormant for a long time because the studio thing wasn't really happening for him. So he goes back out into the streets until one day he's trying, you know, he hears a J-Rock, who's also in his neighborhood. He hears that this kid named J-Rock is a really dope rapper and he was trying to find J-Rock. But J Rock thought that <laughs> J Rock thought the top dog was looking for him on some on some street stuff. Like, oh man, he's looking for me. I need to like hide out <laughs> until he finally he finally finds him at the barbershop. He finds J Rock at the barbershop, and J Rock's like, oh, here we go. But no, it was the whole time it was Top just wanting to legitly put a studio together, and so a lot of people don't realize that. TDE really started with J-Rock. J-Rock was like the star first. It was supposed to be J-Rock first, then Kendrick, then all these other people. Um, so Top is like this. Uh, he was a figure in that way where he didn't charge a grip for studio time. And especially with TDE, he just kind of let them figure it out. He, he let them in, in his home. He didn't really give him a whole lot of money. He made them struggle on purpose. So if they got hungry, they had to go eat some cheap from they, from Louisiana fried chicken to teach them <laughs> to teach them sort of, you know, to to appreciate what they're doing and what they're what they're going to have. And um, so long story short, man, I, I feel like that's what that's what Top is. He not only taught him hard work, he taught him to appreciate what he has. And I think that's why even now you don't hear from Kendrick unless he has a record coming out because he still they all have that and it's a direct quote the hustle like you broke mentality mm. you still have that and um, Ian, they instilled that top instilled that in like 2003 2004
0: we talked about the early mixtapes where he was imitating uh, Jay-z and imitating Lil Wayne and rapping over the beats how did he start to form his his own identity there were a bunch of breakthroughs along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah. The major breakthrough for him was, um, I want to say it was around 2008. It was around 2008 when he decides that the whole k thing is, is sort of running its course because, you know, you you can only rap for rapping's sake for a specific amount of time before it starts getting stale. And so after talking to some friends like Matt Jeezy and talking to, you know, other, other um, people from around the way, he decides like, man, I need to tell my story. I need to... I need to talk about something that's gonna last a long time. And the way he does that, the way he steps into the light is by starting to rap under his name, his first and middle names, Kendrick Lamar. And in him doing that, he starts talking about the things we were talking about earlier. He starts unpacking the gang culture. He starts talking about uh, friends and family who are in jail, others who've gotten killed. He's talking about very serious things. And so the breakthrough was about, I guess, what was that, about 12 years ago? Um, when he started rapping under his government name,
0: and here is this, you know, as we know now, this actual genius touring as I think uh, J Rock's hype man. Like he went out as someone's hype man, and that I mean, I thought if we're looking at lessons to learn from him, I mean, the m- humility of again, like this <laughs> this guy who would win the a Pulitzer Prize just a few years later is out as somebody's hype man.
1: Yeah, and that's the crazy thing. Like people don't even realize that either. It's like. You know, again, Kendrick is the epitome of 10,000 hours, where, like you just said, it's that humility of, yes, I want to be a rap star, but I want to learn everything about this business. And so, um, around that time, as J Rock's hype man, he also was learning how to perform from Tech Nine and from the whole Strange Music crew. Like, he saw the way that they ran their ship. And he's like, oh, okay, that's how I need to operate it too. Everything from you know the sound man to how the lights come up to how how long you perform, how long you have silence between songs. He's studying all these things. He was literally Kobe shooting in the gym at that time, just putting in those putting in that sweat equity to one day be you know. Because he knew he always wanted to be all an all time great. He didn't just want to be great for the moment. He wanted to have a long lasting legacy, and he understood that. You have to study other people. You have to study greatness to yourself be great.
0: Now let's talk quickly about his debut, Section Eighty, which, which for me, kind of always spans the the gap between mixtape and a real debut. Is is kind of it's kind of really a mixtape that they decided to release as an album. It seems to me.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's the thing, and, that, and that's still a hotly debated uh, thing within Kendrick Lamar fans. Where like, uh, no, is it an album? Is it a mixtape? I don't know. It's weird because I never really got a definitive answer from them. But I know that in interviews he always said, like, oh, Good Kid, Mad City is my major studio debut album. But Section 80 is totally an album. It's totally an album. But, you know, they, didn't, they just kind of offered it up as another mixtape to, to, you know, before Good Kid, Mad City.
0: Now there's good stuff on it. There's some stuff that that this is like the the one emo song that that kind of is, is pretty dated and stuff. But I, I think it's mostly notable for two things. I mean, you can tell that here is this massive talent arriving. But also, I mean, Good Kid, Mad City. There's a, a just a hyperspeed Millennium Falcon leap past that album or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I mean, so let let's talk about. Good Kid, Mad City, which as far as an album establishing an artist from any genre as kind of a player in the all-time greatest stakes, there's little competition in the last 20 years. I mean, it's just an album that made everyone kind of like sit back and, and be like, wait a second.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I feel like I remember when it came out and I remember that uh, a lot of people wanted to compare it to Ilmatic, Nas's album. And I could see where people would say that you know, it, it definitely tells a story in the way that Illmatic does. But the thing that I appreciate about Good Kid, Mad City to this day is that, um, you know, it's, it's totally a West Coast rap album, but to me, it reminded me of Outkast. It, it sounded like a Dungeon Family record. And, and a lot of songs, he sounded like Andre. He sounded like Three Stacks. And it was just like, so, you know, he, he's this, this perfect mix of like old school, new school, West, South, East, you name it. And um he told the story perfectly because I felt like he did it kind of Tarantino style where like, you know, the first scene it's like, bam, I'm gonna drop you right into the story. The song is gonna end with you don't know whether I made it or not. But then let's rewind and go back and then we're gonna come back to this moment. I thought that was pretty brilliant. Honestly, like I didn't realize until I was writing the book myself that the book kinda goes the same way. You know, where it's like chapter one, Macklemore, drop dropping in that scene, then let's back up and walk you through how he finally won the Grammys and essentially won black culture, won over black culture.
0: Yeah, Kendrick would be proud of this structure, no, no doubt. I mean, the, the other thing about that album, Good Kid, is it's, as I think Eminem says in the book, like, the fact that someone arrives with essentially their first major album and it's so finished as a narrative work that there's so much going on with the skits playing into everything else you know it's as if he like i said it's like as if he skipped five albums between uh, section 80 and that it's just to arrive so fully formed is i i think blew everyone away but i wanted to jump to something that happened after that album which was the absolutely infamous moment on uh, Big Sean's control. I heard the great debates all the time about who's the best
1: MC, Kendrick, Jigger, and Nas, Eminem, Andre D, Thousand, the rest of y'all, New
0: Again, it was like a, a, a nuclear bomb. I, I can't remember anything since where people were like, holy shit, you have to hear this. He just did it. And one of the things you see with with him, and I, I think you make a great point emphasizing. Is how historically minded he is, and how much of again an old soul he is. He did something that people hadn't done in a long time, which is just call everyone out on a song, but without like, but in a way that people couldn't really be mad. They just had to be like, for the most part, some people were mad, but but it was just you know, it's just like here I am, I'm I'm going for the title right now. So maybe just break that down a little bit
1: yeah totally agreed man because i i I grew up in an era of hip-hop where like it was all sport like they were all friendly with each other they were all gonna hop on each other's songs but make no mistake i want to be the greatest you know whether it was krs1 and mc Shan, whether it was ll cool j and all his beefs it's like i'm gonna call you out and it's no it's no we're not soft here it's no diss it's no diss it's like it's just it is what it is and i feel like that verse got back to that where it's like look Yes, I'm gonna be on Big Sean's song, but I'm gonna call him out. I'm gonna call out Jay Electronica. I'm calling out, J- I'm calling out everybody. And it's, it's. there's nothing malicious about it, I, I didn't think. I thought certain people got a little ruffled because they, you could tell that they didn't come up in that era of hip hop where, you know, when hip hop was still nascent and everybody was trying to establish themselves. He came from that mentality and I thought it was great. And also just as a Tupac, he was a Tupac fan. Tupac, was going, he was calling out everybody on Machiavelli, like by name, you know? So I thought that him, him doing that verse sort of shifted his narrative too, because before then, I mean, we already knew him as like the kid from Section 80, obviously, the kid from Good Kid, Mad City. He had these hits and he performed at these festivals and was doing great. But I think that was the moment when we realized like, oh, okay, he's like a, an OG hip hop guy. Like he studies history. And I thought it was great. And also, if I'm on that song, if I get called out by him on that song, I'm taking it as a compliment because that means that, okay, I need to step my game up or at least, I don't know, if you want to battle, go back at him the same way he came at you. Like, it should be that it's hip hop. And that's what hip hop is built on. And I think a lot of people forgot that by 2013.
0: The next thing that happened, and I think my, my favorite part of the book is the making of To Pimp a Butterfly, because making this album is, I would say, probably unlike, unlike few hip-hop albums ever made, few other albums ever made. It's a mind-blowing process, and, when, and what he did by assembling all these jazz musicians and all these producers, and uh, you know, he, he created what is clearly you know one of the peak artistic achievements of the 21st century. I don't think I I don't think that's an overstatement. I mean, it's it's one of the the signature artistic moments of this entire century. And I'm not just talking about hip hop, and I'm not just talking about music either. And you you got some fresh reporting, and it, I think it's the first time I really understood how it was made because it, it's one of those albums that you hear and you're like, how, literally, how the fuck did they do this? You know? So uh, maybe just. Break down how he even got it in his head to make such a jazz influenced album and then what the process was.
1: Oh, man. Well, okay, well, that was the longest chapter for a reason. So I'll try try to be a little succinct here uh, while also giving the info. But um, after Good Kid, Mad City comes out after the Grammy debacle, he goes out to South Africa. And um, while in South Africa, he was performing a trio of shows and he's actually in the neighborhoods out there. He's in the communities. He's not just in the touristy parts. So he's getting the richness of the continent. And personally speaking, I totally feel where he was coming from because I also I split time between Brooklyn and uh, Nairobi, Kenya, which is in East Africa. And, um, you know, it's nothing like when you when you touch down, you just feel different. And, And especially as a black man, you feel that this, that's where you need to be. So he's over in South Africa. He's texting with Soundwave. He's like, man, I'm, I'm pulling in all this different stimuli. I'm, I'm hearing the drums, man. I'm seeing the culture. And I, I need to create something like that. So it comes back, him and Soundwave and company, they create, they start creating To Pimper Butterfly. They start, you know, putting the beats together. But it was, they pulled in Terrace Martin, who I think is the MVP of that album, who is like, he's a super dope producer but he's also a classically trained like jazz musician. Like he he came up in this prestigious uh, jazz program in LA where like Thundercat was his classmate, Kamazi Washington was his classmate. He's known Robert Glasper for that amount of time. And so they pulled him in to say like, hey, we need some jazz overlays over all of this stuff. And so he's literally just calling friends. Hey, Robert Glasper, you in town, I need you to play keys on this joint. Hey, uh, and Thundercat was pulled into it early, so that's why he's all over the album and he has production credits and whatnot. But yeah, they they wanted that album to sort of be like this cross section of LA jazz, funk, rap, uh, old West Coast rap. You name all these things going on in concert, along with the spoken word poem that he has throughout, along with the heavy topics that he's talking about. But musically speaking, what they tell me is that they were just essentially just creating music every day. They were just you know they'd go to the studio, they would lock in for like however many hours and just create music. And the the, the story that I appreciate the most from that, you know, just as a jazz head myself is when uh, the story of Terrace Martin, when he said that he was looking at, um, he was playing some Latin jazz and he didn't know what it was. Uh, Kendrick didn't know what it was. And then there's another time where uh, he asked Kendrick, hey, have you seen the movie Mo' Better Blues? And they're watching Mo' Better Blues. And I didn't realize until now, but it's totally the same song where at the end, there's that scene where Spike Lee's getting beaten up in the alley. And this is, you know, Denzel's playing this crazy frenetic breakdown, on stage. And that's how For Free came about, the, uh, the, for the second song on the album. So it was just little things like that, man, where, and they all say this way, they were just locked in, just creating music and whatever made the cut made the cut. But it was su- such a heavy album to pull together because they also were taking into account what was happening in the streets as they were creating it. You know, they were paying attention to like Trayvon and Mike Brown and so on and so forth. And so that comes out in the record as well.
0: Now you mentioned there's such a kinship between uh, Black Messiah by D'Angelo and that record. I, I actually talked to D'Angelo about that and he he certainly felt it. Did you talk to people involved with the album who kind of saw the the, the kinship there?
1: No, that was totally me putting on my music critic hat. Uh, and actually, I, I did previous interviews, uh, one in particular with uh, Rafael Sadiq, where I asked him directly, like, because if you remember, between December 2014 and March 2015, you had these three records that were all super socially political, and they just seemed to hit all black and gray covers. You know, like you said, it was um, Black Messiah, then you had Tip Every Butterfly, then you had Kamazi Washington's The Epic. Like, it's this trio of records that tap into different sections of black America, like You know, Black Messiah was the most political one, the most political album that D'Angelo's ever put out. To Pepper Butterfly, obviously, was probably the most groundbreaking. I mean, Kamazi Washington's record essentially brought back jazz. You know, it kind of kept the door open. Like To Pepper Butterfly brought jazz back. That one kept it open because it was a three hour album. So, you know, I, I just always look at those records as like the holy trinity of like socially conscious music. Uh, between late winter 2014 and spring 2015.
0: Absolutely. And tell me about All Right, both the uh, the making of the song with Pharrell and then how it became the anthem it became.
1: Yeah, yeah. That was, um, that was a beat that Kendrick had been sitting on for a long time. I want to say like six months or so. He had been just sitting on it because he didn't know what he wanted to say. Um, and even before that, if I'm remembering correctly, apologies, I turned in this book like a year ago. Uh, <laughs> so I'm trying to remember everything, but um, Pharrell had the beat done for a long time. And he was saying that he was really in, when he created it, he was in his tribe called Quest Bag, you know, where it was super jazzy, but it was also soulful. It had a, the, the drums had a hard knock to it, but when you listen to the chords and the roads on it, It's all very like mid 70s Stevie, you know, it sounds lush in that way. And so somehow or another um, Soundwave gets the beat. They get the beat and they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to do something with this. But again, Kendra just didn't know what he wanted to say to it because he said that when he heard the beat, he uh, he knew he wanted to say something of substance. But because his lyrics are so intricate and because his uh, his topics are so intricate, he didn't know how he wanted to attack it attack the beat. And so it wasn't until Pharrell and another industry insider was like, yo, you need to do something with this music. Like, hurry up. You know, because Kendrick notoriously sits on beats for like years and years. And so he finally does something with it and it comes out. Well, excuse me, it it comes out via the album. And honest, and Terrace was telling me they didn't think it was going to have the impact that it has. Like, they knew it was a good song, but it wasn't until they heard it being chanted at protests that they realized that it was something else you know and so i think that's the long lasting impact of alright it's it's something you didn't necessarily hear it on the radio a bunch or you didn't see it shoot up to the top of the charts but when you heard it in the actual streets um chanted by real people that meant more than any sort of commercial success that that song could have
0: i got a kick out of someone telling you or are you quoting someone that in the run up to making that album from the music that Kendrick was listening to on the on the tour bus, you'd think he was a fifty-five year old man. Can we just yeah. talk about someone he was listening to like kind of blue and, and Bitches Brew and just kind of like taking in the history it sounds
1: like. He was, he was. He was um and that's the thing again, just as a jazz head, that's how it happens, man. You listen to one record and you're like, wow, and then you look at the liner notes and you see who played what on that and then you realize they had a whole discography of music. And so he just fall in this rabbit hole and it's tough to climb out. And so in the lead up to, to Pepper Butterfly, he was listening to that sort of music, just stuff that were that was pushing him out of his creative, you know, pushing him out of his comfort zone. Um, so Bitches Rue, obviously. I mean, you know, that's when Miles went electric and changed jazz one more time. And then he was also listening to, like you said, Donald Byrd, Sly and the Family Stone. He was listening to... Um, I forget, oh, George Clinton, he was listening to all of these people, and uh, yeah, and it just sort of opened him up to realize that, okay, even though he grew up with, he grew up with soul music, he grew up on Tupac and and people like that, but there's this whole other genre of music that he could be tapping into, and no one in hip-hop was doing that at the time, and so, in typical Kendrick fashion, if everybody's over here doing one thing, I'm going to go over here and do something totally different, and... I'm not gonna know what it looks like while I'm making it, but I'm a still I'm gonna feel my way through it and see what happens. I'm gonna come out on the other side, and hopefully people understand it. If not, it'll be there for you whenever you're ready for it.
0: And it's not just jazz; it was it was funk as well that he was drawing on, which had had slipped away from from a lot of hip hop. And and by the way, I, as far as under three thousand, like Kendrick flat out told me, like that's where <laughs> that as far as singing within hip hop, that was his inspiration. That was where he first. Personally, so that that's, that's definitely was a huge part of, of his thing. He also, he also acknowledged that he was pretty familiar with Curtis Mayfield. So when he hits that falsetto, that's not a coincidence that he, he ends up sounding that way. But the interesting thing is, not to, to draw a corny comparison, but the same way that uh, you know in the 60s when Bob Dylan was a, known as a protest singer and then started to go into something more internal and more psychological and more personal people got really mad at Bob Dylan for doing that. And and Kendrick, it seems like a little bit of the same thing is happening and, or has happened. And then, you know, at the same time, he's going to say things that aren't maybe what people want him to hear, want him to say, and maybe even that aren't the right thing to say. I mean, you know, he he's had comments that people have criticized for, for kind of verging on respectability politics. I think it was about, you know, talking about like how, we have to look at how we behave. And his answer was, he's not really talking sociologically, he's talking about himself. Do you, do you accept that answer personally when, when he presents that?
1: At the time, I didn't. I didn't um, because it didn't, it didn't make sense. You know, it's like, when, especially when you're coming from a neighborhood where, yes, you see the violence, but you also had run-ins with the LAPD. So I thought it was ill times. I thought it was a little time that was a little scary because it's like, uh oh, is is he, you know, crossing over the commercial? Is he is he gone? Like what was happening here? Because also in that run up to, to Butterfly, remember, the singles were so totally different from each other. And at least in my circle, we didn't understand what he was going for. It's like but the Black of the Berry was a great song. But then you had that last verse where he's like, you know. What about, hey, did he did he kill somebody? Or maybe, you know, he's getting into respectability politics again. So that was a struggle. Then you had I, which was like, at the time, everybody was, you know, like angry, you know, mad. Like all the songs were upset. And he comes with like this happy pop song. and was like, well, wait, hold on. Like, <laughs> you know, and then King Kuta didn't seem to fit what he was doing before. So, yeah, no, that's what people forget that. Like, it's easy to forget that running up to that record... He he bumped his head a bunch um, Between the interviews Like you said and Between the different singles So I don't know I feel like um, At the time Yes People had the right to be upset Because he was saying things That we didn't expect from him Especially coming off of Good Kid Mad City And the performance at the Grammys With Imagine Dragons And Coming off of that It was like wait And then he did the Yeezy tour The Yeezus tour you know, there was there was a fear that we were wondering if he was crossing over to, to the dark side, so to speak.
0: And then then came Damn, which is the album I, I talked to him for, and then that's you know, a interesting combination of going super spiritual in ways that can sometimes be like a little harder to follow and kind of abstract and, and wild and you're kind of trying to it, it becomes that challenge of understanding where his head's at. And at the same time, it's the most commercial album he's ever made in some ways. So it's just, it becomes hard to chart in, in, I think, a really fascinating way where he's going. He's not going in just one direction. He's kind of kale- kaleidoscopically splitting out in a bunch of directions at once.
1: Yeah, totally, totally. And, um, you know, you're right. And, and the thing that is uh, sort of brilliant about the Damn album is that it's almost sort of working against each other. Like the music is commercial. The music sounds like it's made for clubs. So you have that one sound, you have these hard beats, you know, like he was saying, you know, when he heard the album, he thought, damn, you know, that was, that was the first thing he thought. But then at the same time, you have these lyrics kind of going against that where he's trying to um, figure out his spirituality. He's, he's analyzing Christianity. He's, um, you know, it's almost a claustrophobic record too, where it's like, he, he comes across a little bit as, you know, okay, I'm famous now, I can't go outside now, uh, the walls are closing in. I don't know how to I don't know how to deal with this, but I know I still have to live. And at the same time he's wrestling with this notion of God, not so much from uh okay, God is here for all of a standpoint. He's wrestling with his own relationship. And I thought that was it's it's equally personal, just like Butterfly, but I and I fell for this trap too where because it didn't have all this weird, you know, cool jazz on it. And I heard all these 808 drums, I just assumed like, oh, this is a club record. But no, it's, it's really, honestly, it's, a, it's, it's almost like a spiritual jazz album when you, when you dive into it. And I even wrote that for NPR. Like it, it's a lot of jazz between Duckworth, between Feel and Fear. It's a lot going on. He's a band leader that people should probably give him more credit for being.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's deep into the, the production of, of everything. It's so different, like I, I watched Future in the studio, I, I said this to Kendrick, and, and Future just, you know, Future's one of those guys, you give him a track and he just raps on it, and he'll make something great. But Kendrick has never seen a, a, a track that he doesn't get into the stems, at the very least, if he's not making stuff from, from scratch the way he did on uh, To of Butterfly, but he, he's always gonna be messing with the beat, he's always gonna be kinda into the, the, the nitty gritty of the music in a way that, that not all rappers do. And we shouldn't, I, you know. I, I just got a shout out: "Untitled, Unmastered," which has some of his best music on it. It's this kind of like bonus album that came out between those albums. But ev- everyone who hasn't heard that album, there's some amazing, especially like live instrumental type stuff on that record.
1: Mm-hmm. "Untitled 5 is my jam, to this Absolutely. day.
0: And uh, so, and then then there was the Black Panther soundtrack. We're, we're just getting up to the present day as, as we hit the end of the show, but. Have you heard any whispers about? I mean, he's obviously working on a new album. Uh, Top Dog keeps kind of dropping hints about it on, on Twitter. What, what do you think is going on?
1: <laughs> man, you know, I wish I had insight for y'all. Man, I've been <laughs> I've been asked that so many times, and that's a fair question. I, I could see him going more traditional hip hop. Like for whatever reason, man, I, I just feel like maybe I could see him like you know DJ Premier on some cuts, Pete Rock on some cuts, Soundwave, of course. And he just get he releases a back to basics album for whatever reason. I could see him being influenced by uh, a unit like Griselda. I could see him like hearing what Conway and Westside and all those guys Benny are doing. And it's like oh, okay, I need to get back to that because quite honestly, he said so much in his music from Section eighty to to Damn that it's like man, I, I could totally be here for him just rapping, just sort of like. Re- reclaiming his throne as, as the greatest rapper around because it has been three years which is an eternity in, in the music industry so I would say maybe a back to basics but just as a fan though I gotta say I would love to hear him do an album with Madlib like just him and Madlib on a whole record I would love to hear him do like a um, something sort of like you know with jazz and maybe a continuation of To Pimper Butterfly to a certain extent but I could see him you know Just going back to the block, you know, some mob Deep kind of stuff.
0: So, Marcus J. Moore, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, Marcus is the author of The Butterfly Effect, How Kendrick Lamar Ignited the Soul of Black America, and it's a great and timely book. And this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on SiriusXM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Maybe give us five stars on iTunes if you're feeling like it. Maybe leave us a nice review. It's always appreciated. But as always, thanks for listening. Stay safe, and we'll see you next week.